Annie is an extension of me, my most super ego. And let's just keep it on Annie at all times. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. I think I'm going to like it here. I mean, I think I'm going to freaking love it here. Yeah. So it was such a fantasy of mine to be plucked from obscurity. And that is the story of Annie. Hello, and welcome to the Untitled Gen X podcast, a podcast dedicated to the pop culture that raised us. I'm Lori, a writer and pop culture lover who's inspired to welcome a woman of so many amazing talents. And Emig is here to join me in singing the praises of 1982's musical masterpiece, Annie. But before we bet our bottom dollar, I'd like to tell you all about the effervescent Anne Emig. Anne is a writer, speaker, performer, and positive psychology coach who spends most of her time feeding her sons and vacuuming cat litter. In 2010, she created the nationwide storytelling series and book titled Listen to Your Mother and continues to help others find and amplify their voices as a positive psychology coach at Listen Life Coaching. Thanks for joining me, Anne. I'm so excited to have you here. Oh, I'm smiling so big already. (laughs) And we're talking about our beloved Annie. Can you tell me about your history with this 1982 masterpiece? So for me, it's before that. Ooh. Uh, Yeah, it's the, the stage musical for me. Okay, tell me about it. Well, I did a little research and I can't confirm that a touring company came to my hometown of Madison, Wisconsin, but that's got to be it because it like played such an outsized role in my young childhood. Um, And I had the Broadway recording with Andrea McArdle and spent hours just singing the songs, driving my family insane. It was like the opposite. (laughs) I'm realizing this now, you know, we're in this generation of parents who like constantly photograph and record their kids and put it on TikTok. And in my house, it was like, shut up. Enough. And we get it. Yes. Like my parents never told me to shut up. My siblings would be screaming, shut up. (laughs) My parents were like, and when there's already the radio on another person doesn't get to start singing, you know, it was right. Um, I think I saw a, like a summer camp version of it. I didn't ever get to be in it except for in my bedroom where I was constantly the star. Of course. And then the movie came out, which just, you know, continued the fervor. And I have memories. I had this like Disney waste paper basket in my room and I would pretend it was Sandy, my dog. Oh, because also with the release of the movie came new songs that were not in the original musical, like the song dumb dog. Okay. A classic, a classic <laughs> lean down and crouch and like put my chin in my hand, just like alien Quinn and sing to my trash can. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. You know, it's so funny because You know, Kate, Kate was my co-host from season one, my childhood best friend. And Kate was obsessed with Annie obsessed. I think she too saw a stage production of the musical. And then when the movie came out, I remember we used to like play Annie Mm -hmm. and 
I think I always got stuck being Molly, if memory mm-hmm. serves. Mm-hmm. And it was just such a big part of her life and, you know, sort of by proxy, a big part of mine. And I had never seen a stage production of it. I, I'm only familiar with the film. Mm-hmm. But of course, like we can start at the beginning. The origins of Little Orphan Annie go back like almost a hundred years. Yeah, the comic strip. Yes, the comic strip. It was uh, created by cartoonist Harold Gray and it debuted in 1924. And then in 1930, it was adapted to a popular radio show. And then the Broadway musical Annie came about in 1977. And Sarah Jessica Parker took the role of Annie on Broadway in 79. Yep. The music is so just hopeful and inspiring. And this little girl was so tough and she had such spirit and like moxie. And I think that was what we all sort of gravitated toward. Absolutely. You know, thinking about it in preparation for this podcast, I was really struck by like, I know she's supposed to be cute, but like, I did not think she was cute. I did not think her hair was cute. Like (laughs) even, even when I remember for the stage play, it was almost like she had a bowl cut, almost kind of like a Dorothy Hamill cut, which makes sense for the time. Yeah. But like, it was not about, it wasn't about princesses. Cuteness was not her main thing. And I think that is so refreshing for like a, a little girl's, you know, story. Absolutely. I, I remember thinking she was kind of unattractive, but that was not the point. I just feel like that wouldn't happen in the same way now. I wholeheartedly agree. I think now, and you know, there were remakes and, and it's gotten glossier mm-hmm. as, as time has passed, we've prettied it up. I know that they've tried to make like modern adaptations of it to make it more, you know, out of the depression era and more in, in modern times. But Annie really was the girl who had the spirit mm-hmm. and the spirit to keep going through the hard times. And it fits that yeah. she would be really a role model, a role mm-hmm. model for any girl going through anything in life. And she could find something in Annie to kind of latch onto for hope. And, yeah. you know, she was charming. And I thought <laughs> Aileen Quinn was fantastic in this yeah, role. She was, yeah. She was amazing. I mean, she nabbed this role out of like 8,000 girls auditioning. I think she had like eight callbacks. It took them a year to cast this. I love those like audition, like clips that you can find on YouTube. So it was such a fantasy of mine to be plucked from obscurity. And that is the story of Annie. Like she was so amazing. The daddy Warbucks chose her. And I think that was my dream as I would like sit at the pool and belt out tomorrow for the lifeguards. Like, somebody is going to discover me and cast me as Annie. (laughs) This is my big moment. Yes. It was that desire to just want to be seen. Yeah. And have you like plucked out of your life into some fantasy that is all about you. And like, I was the youngest, so I wasn't an only child, but I think so many children can relate. Like I spent a lot of time alone. I had lots of friends, but like within my home, I was the youngest kid. Mm -hmm. You know, it's also like the ultimate revenge fantasy when the, you're, you're the youngest and you're picked on like, I'm going to get, you know, this is my fantasy of getting selected by this rich millionaire and getting to tap dance on, you know, the stairs in front of everybody with the fireworks. I couldn't tap dance, but I could fake it with my clogs. 
I mean, I remember this scene when she finally shows up at the Warbucks estate and mm-hmm. all the people are fluttering around her, wanting to do yeah. things for oh, her. Oh, we and- got Annie. That's not in the musical either. We got Annie. I thought that was really weird, even as a kid. It, it was oh, you weird. did? Yeah, we got Annie. <laughs> it was funny because it had been probably, I don't know, 30 years, maybe longer since I had seen it. And so now I was watching like the parts that I had deemed boring. Like when she goes to the White House, I swear to God, I oh, think yeah. I used to just like black out. Like I didn't yeah, care. So boring, right? Yeah, like so boring. The whole you're only fully dressed without a smile part. It's like, yeah. it's not about Annie. Move along. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> Come on, kids. You're cute and everything, but but let's go. Yeah. And like, what did we think of Miss Hannigan? Like she was so scary. Like now you see it's like funny and it's. Carol Burnett's hilarious and amazing. And oh my God. But like at the time it was just like freaky. And what is wrong with this woman? I didn't understand what was wrong with her. Right. And she was so like, sort of like sexed up. Like she was just so <laughs> that I was, I didn't know what to do with it. I'm like, yeah, Who is she? and she's drunk all the time with the yeah. makeup and the clips and the wild hair. And, and she's always wearing sort of like a slip negligee type <laughs> And that's, that sex stuff stuff just like went right over my head and, and at the same time also like put in that disgusting category of when they would like talk about making whoopee on like the dating game or like, you know, weird, like, or floozy or like, you know, something where you're like, you don't even know what that means, but you're just like, I know that that's gross at some intuitive level. I don't understand what's going on with her, but this is not about Annie singing. So can we just get back to that? Because Annie is an extension of me, my most super ego, and let's just keep it on Annie at all times. Let's keep it on Annie. Keep the spotlight. spotlight. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. yes. You're like, I'm Annie. My name is Anne. They're basically the same. For my eight-year-old birthday, I had an Annie cake <gasps> with like the original original art from the poster with Annie with her like on the, with the cartoon kind of on the letter. I was wearing like a sailor dress outfit, which actually kind of is one of the costumes uh-huh. in the show. But that is just also because I was an eight-year-old girl in 1982. And that's what the moms were dressing their kids in. Right. And I remember we picked the cake up from the bakery. My mom let me hold it in the back seat. And I remember it kind of like, ugh, like fell into it. And like, there was like a little dent and I was like, Oh my God. My Annie cake. I know. And it wasn't ruined. And I was just like really hoping my mom didn't notice because she had like given me this responsibility. Right. We didn't do themed birthday parties back then. That was the extent of the theme. But yes, my name was Anne. I had an Annie cake and it was my golden birthday because I was turning eight on May 8th. So it was epic. That sounds legendary. (laughs) If you find that picture... We need to share that on Instagram I know, because I that is precious. It. I'm going to keep looking. I'm determined. Yes. We need that in our lives. I need to see a young Anne channeling yeah. Annie. Yeah. I need to see that. And I had freckles and I was always self-conscious, but Annie gave me permission to have freckles. That's so cute. Yeah. I just sort of felt like, like, look at this girl. She's so adored. Mm-hmm. And so it's okay. It's okay to have them. I don't have to be embarrassed about them. Oh, that's really no. sweet. Yeah. So first of all, we are not unique. There's bazillions of other people our age who grew up idolizing Annie. Yes. And especially people who 
became actors. There's a um, song from a show called title of show. Actually, it's kind of a funny title, but it's um, a, called a way back to then. And the first lyrics are dancing in the backyard, Kool-Aid mustache and butterfly wings, hearing Andrea McArdle sing on the hi-fi in the den. And it's all about trying to like recapture. This is all about an actor, an actress, but like trying to recapture those years of just like singing and pretending in your backyard. Or the joy of it. Yeah. Just without an audience, just for the love of it. Right. So in terms of the film, Columbia Pictures purchased the rights to the musical for $9.5 million. Wow. That was a lot of money. I mean, it's a lot of money now. Yeah. A lot of money back then. And the screenplay was written by Carol Sobieski, who actually also wrote the screenplay for Fried Green Tomatoes. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So this film was directed by John Houston, who was a really unlikely choice. He was this like tough sort of brash guy. And he had directed like the Maltese Falcon, the treasure of the Sierra Madre and the African queen. So to put him at the helm of this musical was really unlikely. At the time, the film had a budget of $35 million. I mean, that's big. Huge. Yeah. Huge. And it was the most expensive musical ever made uh-huh. at that time. Well, I'm thinking about some of the um, the stunts that must have been intense. Like that whole bridge scene has to had to cost a fortune to shoot and light. And yeah, absolutely. And then, of course, it's kind of a cast of thousands, right? Yeah, it's huge. It's and huge. all the choreography and, and yes. all of it, it's it's big. So, of course, in the film, it's 1933. We're in the Great Depression and we open on Annie who's living at the Hudson Street home for girls. She's singing maybe. I can see it right now. That song. It's so beautiful and touching. And it just, this glimmer of hope she has that someday her parents will come back for her. And I feel it. I know. This whole genre of like the, the orphan experience as though it's out of a Dickens book and not like absolutely part of everyday life. It's right. like very striking and interesting, right? Absolutely. Yeah. All the girls, they live in like this big shared space. It's just rows and rows of beds and hard knock life. I'm just, I'm sorry. I'm just laughing. Cause like, imagine if that's your idea of an orphanage and God forbid, you know, you actually are put in the system. This is not what was promised <laughs> to me. Where are the cartwheels? Where are the back handsprings? Hello. What is- <laughs> so much good tumbling. <laughs> Like so many cool stair dances. I love a stair Ugh. dance. Like I'm a sucker for it. And God, Hard Knock Life just. I mean, it's been sampled by. Jay-Z? Yeah. Good tunes. <laughs> <laughs> just all the right amount of stomping and angst and chorus and I don't know, use of levels. Like the choreography is so good. And fun fact. So they've changed some words over time because they're so dated. Like they used to say, make your drink a Mickey fan, which is like a roofie. They don't say that anymore. Okay, good. Good call. I didn't know what that meant when I was a kid. Yeah. And me either. I just, I I think I thought it was a cocktail, you know? (laughs) I mean, Miss Hannigan's (laughs) around there, you know, like holding her bottles of vodka, whatever she's drinking, slurring, like, you know, all the time. I thought Carol Burnett was amazing. And 
legend has it that Bette Midler was actually the first choice for that role, which I can actually really see. Oh, yeah. You know? She would have been amazing too. But like, I did not appreciate Carol Burnett's awesomeness at the time at all. I think just because there was no delineation between actor and character. And I hated Miss Hannigan because Miss Hannigan was mean, you know? Right. Ergo, I hate Carol Burnett. Yeah. Or I just didn't get it, you know? And now it's like, oh my God. And so I mean, good. Bernadette Peters. Oh my God. She's legend. A legend. Yeah. And I had no interest, you know, easy streets, an amazing number, no interest. Anything having to do with the adults, no interest. I'm out. Fast forward. So, okay, Annie busts out of the orphanage. She escapes, you know, with the laundry. Yeah. And this is when she meets Sandy on the street. He's being harassed. Is Sandy a boy or a girl dog? I think it's a boy. A boy named Sandy. I think it's Sandy because of the color of his hair. Yeah. Okay. Sandy senses something in Annie and won't leave her alone. Hence the song, Dumb Dog. Yeah. So then she gets caught by the cops and she's returned to the orphanage. Then this is when Grace pulls up. Oh, Grace Farrell. Mm-hmm. Yes. Grace Farrell pulls up and she's the secretary to billionaire Oliver Warbucks. And Grace is actually played by actress and dancer Anne Ryan King. Right King. Oh, my God. Yes. And I did not appreciate her incredible dancing at all as a kid. And I went back and watched some of the sequences and it's insane. She's amazing. What an incredible talent. I didn't know who she I was or, or anything about her really esteemed career. Yeah. You know, she won a Tony Award for Best Choreography for her work in the 1996 revival of Chicago. Amazing. She arrives to select an orphan to live with Daddy Warbucks, Mr. Warbucks at this point. He ain't nobody's daddy right now, for a week. And it's it's kind of weird. It's like... It's for some publicity stunt uh-huh, to like okay. improve his image or something. Super weird. Anyway, Grace is talking with Miss Hannigan. Of course, she spots Annie. She's immediately charmed by her. And uh, with Annie's secret help. And I love this scene when I was a kid. Oh, yeah. They're like pantomiming to yes. each other. Oh, I love that. That's such an ultimate. Right. Yes. Yeah. And so she tells Miss Hannigan, like, I'm looking for a girl who's friendly and intelligent and happy and a 10 year old and a redhead. (laughs) And of course, Miss Hannigan's like, I don't got it. Nobody like that here. I don't got it. And then when Grace asks specifically about Annie, Miss Hannigan says, you can have anyone but Annie because she's got it coming for her and she's entirely too cheeky. Diabolical. Diabolical. This is really cruel, Miss Hannigan. And it makes no sense, too, because, like, on one hand, you're like, if you hate her so much, why don't you let her go? She's just like, this girl doesn't deserve a week with the billionaire I do. Right. It's so weird. And then, like, what? He's just going to keep her for a week, take a bunch of pictures in the press, and then send her back to her her dreary life? I know. If she wouldn't have been such a good singer and dancer, that's exactly what would have happened, Lori. Damn. You know, they said, Annie, you don't have to earn your keep here, but they were wrong. That girl had to put in the work. She had to sing for her supper. And And she was just a boring, regular kid. Sorry. Must have been nice to have a nice warm bed for a week and a little privacy. Right. Back to the hoose, (laughs) (laughs) That's the kind of word they use in Annie. I love it. So 
Grace is like, no, you're not doing your job, Miss Hannigan. I'm going to report you, blah, blah, blah. Annie's mine. So anyway, she gets to take Annie. I don't see any paperwork exchange. They just go because 1933. And I guess who cares? She's just an orphan anyway. And they arrive to the Warbucks estate. And this is where Annie is introduced to the bodyguards, Punjab and the Asp. I don't believe in the stage production. This Punjab character is so such an interesting and strange and bizarre, racist, bizarre element of this whole thing. I was going to totally ask you about that because they lean in hard to like the mysticism. The, yes. The mystical Punjab. Yes. It's bizarre. It's also like the only person, these two are the only people of color in the whole film, of course. Right. Right. right of I'm saying, I mean, I don't really remember. I could be wrong. I'm not actually a, an Annie expert, contrary to what you your impression may be, listeners. <laughs> <laughs> severely anecdotal evidence. When Anne Ranking died and I was re-watching these clips, I was like, oh my God, whoa, this is intense. Yeah, and Punjab is played by Jeffrey Holder, who yeah. was an actor, dancer, musician, and artist. He was actually 6'6". He was incredibly tall. Not Indian. He was from Trinidad. So he also did those seven up commercials. Didn't he? Yeah. So I love this scene. We talked about it a minute ago when Annie's led through the mansion. I think I'm going to like it here. I think, I mean, I think I'm going to freaking love it here. Yeah. It's hard for me not to sing when I say these titles. I'm not going to, but she thinks she's going to like it here. It kind of reminded me of Beauty and the Beast, Be Our Guest. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Just like, there's just so much grandeur to it. And it tells us like three stories in that those stained glass windows and they're giving her bubble bath choices and let me measure you to get you clothes. And then at one point, like nine people, I counted them and nine, nine people are making her bed. And she's like, this room <laughs> is all for me. Like it's huge. It's bigger than my house. It's a kid's dream. Dream come true. Totally. This is when we meet Warbucks. He arrives. He is cold and grumpy. He's unhappy. He's like, why do I smell wet dog? Like Grace, who is this girl? Why'd you choose a girl? Warbucks is played by Albert Finney, who I know best from Aaron Brockovich. I mean, I have to admit that he's been in like a billion. Everything. Yeah. Yeah. And it's probably like a Shakespearean actor. I'm just going to guess. I think he's a an English actor. And I think that he has a really impressive stage resume. Oh, for sure. You can tell. Yeah. Yeah. So I had read that Sean Connery was initially offered the role, but he didn't want to be bald in the film. Oh my God. Vanity is so interesting. (laughs) Wow. I know. I know. And then I also read that Cary Grant was considered. And at that point, Cary Grant was really sort of up there in age, but I mean, he's just so absolutely charming. I I don't know. I will admit though, like in the dream where I get to be Annie and I get cast as Annie, the next like frame of that dream is me crying when they put that red curly wig on and I look so hideous. (laughs) So I can kind of relate to Sean Connery. Like it's weird how I want to like, be Annie, but I don't want to yeah. wear the red curly. Yeah. Way. What do you do? What do you do? <laughs> the things we have to do for our craft. Yeah. You know, that your castmates are like, no, really? You look good. And you're like, <laughs> red's not my color. Yeah, no, like the short perm. No, no. 
It's like an 80 year old woman's hairdo on an eight year old with red hair. You know, (laughs) (laughs) so what's sort of weird about her hair, if we could just talk about this for a minute. So it's like short, right? But then she's got these itty bitty longer pigtail thingies. I forgot about those. Is that just like a little tiny section of your hair? I didn't like it. They didn't belong. No, it was so weird. It was I not totally okay. Agree. It's like a little rat tail. That's exactly what it is. Like two little rat tails. Yeah, two little rat tails. It was strange. Strange choice. Yeah. Maybe they were trying to like justify, because there is a big why of like, why is that the iconic Annie hair? I guess just because it it's like the comic strip. So maybe they were trying to like explain that like she just has really thick hair and it's actually in braids, (laughs) but it just looks like Ronald McDonald hair. And and she also has like pupils in her eyes because she is, he is a human. Talked about how freaky that, that was such a strange choice. Why did she just have like white circles for eyes? Zombie eyes. Yes. Yeah. Dead in the eyes. I did know some girls who had red curly hair in real life. But they didn't wear it. They didn't wear it in that style. No. And I don't think they did in the 1930s either. Mm, Yeah. Back at the orphanage, Miss Hannigan is lamenting that she never gets any time away from these girls, right? This Mm -hmm. is when she sings the little girls song, which is actually really a great song. She's so evil. I know. I mean, so many times when I was watching this, I'm like, God, she is an amazing actress and a great singer. Oh yeah. Who knew? I know. There's a lot. I mean, she had out, she had record albums. Did she? I didn't even know. Yeah. She sings Sondheim. She really embraces character acting. Yes. I mean, she's amazing. She killed that number. Yeah. This is when Miss Hannigan's brother, Rooster. Mm, Rooster. And his lady friend. Yeah. They cook up the whole scheme. Yet, well, not quite yet. We just okay. meet them right now. And of course, Rooster is fresh out of jail. Mm-hmm. He's played by Tim Curry, who is a great character actor. Isn't he fantastic? Yes. So good. Rocky Horror Picture Show, Clue, Home Alone 2, and of course, Bernadette Peters. Ugh, the people they got for this film is just unbelievable. So good. So Curry actually said that he wanted to do this film because he grew up in an environment that was incredibly strict. His parents like really didn't let him consume much media, but they were like big fans of musicals. And so that was form of entertainment that was really like allowed in the home. And so he's like, I have to do a musical number if I get the chance. So it's kind of cool. And easy street is such a good number. Oh my God. It's so good. It's so, I have a really interesting story about that. Actually, easy street was filmed outdoors in this like really, really expensive street scene that they created from scratch. And they had like a million and one street vendors singing. And it was this huge musical number. They spent a whole bunch of money on it. And in looking at the dailies, they were like, this number is too big. Annie's not even in it. Right. They're kind of incidental characters. I mean, they're, they're critical to the plot, but they're like, it's definitely like a B storyline. Yeah, exactly. And they're like, you know, this is cool and it's great, but they really should have made that decision, you know, before Before. they spent all the money, but okay, (laughs) fine. Whatever. They didn't 35 million. This is how it happened. 
And Carol Burnett was like, um, we have a problem because they didn't refilm it inside until like months later. And in between that time, Carol Burnett had jaw surgery. Oh my God. And she said, you know, at one point I go into a closet without a chin and I come out with a chin. I come out like looking completely different. And the director's like, it's okay. In the spirit of the song, just come out of the closet looking determined. It's fine. Nobody's going to be paying attention anyway. Right. Like she, apparently if you go back, she has a different face. I can picture it. Not that moment, but I can picture her face before and after the surgery. Yeah. Yeah. Warbucks is basically guilted by grace into taking Annie to, to the movies. So he's like, yeah, okay. I'll just rent out radio city music hall. And this is when we get the great musical number. Let's go to the movies. What do you think about this one? That was not in the original one either. I don't think. Oh, it's not. I don't think so. I think that's new. Again, not an Annie scholar. This is purely from memory, but I think this was just for the movie. Annie and Grace are getting ready singing this song. And Grace is dressed fully like a glam Girl Scout leader. The look is, it's all khaki. Like yeah, it was yeah. very, yeah. So, but I was thinking, like, wow, what a time to like go to the movies or the show, as my grandma would call it, and it be such an event. An event, yeah. Mm-hmm. So they arrive, and there's just rows and rows of fancy, fancy ushers taking them to their seats. The Rockettes are performing on stage. It's, it's really cool. It's all just for them. So they show the film Camille starring Greta Garbo. They show like three minutes of the film. I know I blacked out during this That's scene. When I was a kid. It's like That's so such boring. a bizarre choice. Annie falls asleep. Right. Because Annie is all of us. <laughs> same Annie, same. And this is when at the end of the movie, Warbucks carries Annie out. Mm, dream. Annie. Yeah. And then when they get home, he carries her to bed. This is such smart filmmaking we are already all in all of us little girls but like who among us hasn't been lifted off the heap of coats in the coat room at the dinner party and put in the car and brought to our bed by our parents actually this is a really hilarious bizarre annie parallel my parents would take me to like classical music and really wonderfully cultured really boring things for like a nine-year-old right and like clockwork i would fall asleep and they would carry me out and um Never mind. <laughs> this is just a total tangent. <laughs> no. no, these are the well, best just, stories. Well, okay. So you have to back up one day on another boring field trip with my dad. He had taken us all to the Albium Art Museum, which is now the Chazen. And I did not want to go. My dad would stay there forever. It was so boring. I had a huge, I pitched a huge fit. I was only like five. And they did that whole thing like, okay, well, we're going to go in and like, you can stay here and cry. And I was like, fine. So my dad and my siblings go in and he's watching me the whole time. I don't know this, right? but the next thing he knows, he sees me walk off with some woman. <gasps> she was your grace. She was going to rescue you from this terrible situation. Yes, this is my orphan Annie experience. Okay. My dad comes charging out. He is so pissed. He like throws me over his shoulder. She now thinks that he's like, kidnapping me or whatever and she's like because I had been crying and she just sees this little girl crying and she's just like come back to my house with me like you know she doesn't know what to do with me he's like I'm her father like it's okay like I vaguely remember this but fast forward a few years later 
one of these times where my dad is carrying me out after I've fallen asleep at a concert, the same woman is in the row, like seeing my dad once again, like hoist me over his shoulder. No. Like, yeah. What are the chances? Yeah. I mean, Madison's a super small like world, but just a very interesting Annie parallel for you. That is a total non sequitur, but you can see how my brain got there. I'm following that train and <laughs> he carries her to bed. Warbucks watches Grace kiss her and he's like really moved by it. And he asks her like, how did you learn to do that? Like get her ready for bed. And Grace is like, well, you helped too. And he was like, I did. Mm. Like his heart is softening. Like throughout the film, there's a lot of references. Like I'm a Republican. I believe in capitalism. (laughs) Like money, money, money. You know, he's just all focused on the money and there's never any heart in him. And like, this is the first real moment. This is like Hollywood, like big Hollywood trying to grapple with the Reagan era. Like it's coming out in this movie and like, you know. It is like at one point he's like, they're a Democrat. Like, like, (laughs) it's really funny. So many people were like, in general, kids really aren't my thing. And then you have your own kid and it changes. And like, that's kind of what that moment is about. I feel like. I think so too. In the morning, Grace joins him in the backyard for breakfast. And this is when she's wearing that yellow dress. I feel like we need to talk about the yellow dress. She is so lovely. I know. She asks him, can we keep her? Warbuck says, absolutely not. I'm a businessman. I love power. I love money. I love (laughs) capitalism. I do not now and will never love children. And she says like, well, watching you with her last night, I thought maybe Warbuck says to her, I just noticed something. You're awfully pretty when you argue with me. And it's so weird too. Like they are using, it's like they need Annie to like be able to come together. The two of them. They them. do. It's they 100% so do. Like she's been his secretary for like a million years. Like everyone, generally speaking, don't go adopt a child to win the heart of a person. Bad idea. No. This is when he says to her, your teeth are crooked. Oh, that bastard. Right. And she goes, I'll have them fixed. Ugh. And he goes, gross. I like them crooked. You can call me Oliver. What? (laughs) Like what? What just happened? This is not appropriate messaging for young girls who are watching this movie. So Grace tells him, I can have the paper signed today. And he agrees. Yep. Let's do it. In fact, you know what? I'll do it myself. And she says, oh, I could just kiss you. And then she catches herself. And this is when Warbucks suggests they give Annie a gift to commemorate the occasion. Let's get her a locket from Tiffany. Now, as we know, Annie wears a broken locket. This locket is like her most prized possession because she was left at the orphanage when she was just a little baby. And the understanding was that when her parents came to find her, they would have the other half of that locket and then they would be a family. And that's how Annie will know when her parents come back for her. This is when we get the song you're talking about. We got Annie. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Warbucks goes to the orphanage. Miss Hannigan is leaning in hard. She's flirting with him big time. Like maybe Warbucks can rescue me from my terrible situation. And they do that dueling duet of the song sign. 
she doesn't want to sign over the adoption Uh papers to him and he's trying to get her to, and she's trying to seduce him all the while. And he's like, I'm not here for it. This is why I blocked it out. It's just two creepy old people. Too cringy. Can't do it. Yeah. So he eventually basically strong arms her into signing it. And he is nervous to tell Annie I've adopted you. He presents her with the locket and the chance to be his daughter. And she declines. Right. She's waiting for her parents. She says, I'm going to have a regular mom and dad, like a regular kid. I've been dreaming about my folks for as long as I can remember. And I just got to find them. Warbucks agrees to help her. I'm going to appear on a radio show. We're going to get this thing done. I'm going to help you, Annie. And then this is when we get the, you're never fully dressed without a smile, which is in the original. And also like, just like a pleasing act to number that has nothing to do with anything. (laughs) In the stage production, do you remember, is there that little girl in the background that's always saying, oh my goodness, oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Her name is Tessa and she's very annoying. Yes. Tessa has got to go. I know. I can't with that. I know. Most thankless orphan role. (laughs) Warbucks goes on the radio program to announce that he's conducting a coast-to-coast search for Annie's parents and offers $50,000. Of course, everyone comes out of the woodwork for this money because it's the Great Depression. And Anne, I I do this often on the pod. I broke out the inflation calculator. (laughs) $50,000 in 1933 equates to $1.1 million now. Mm -hmm. It is big money. So all these people are coming saying like, Annie belongs to me. Warbucks is like, we got to get Annie out of here. This is too crazy. So he flies her to the White House, you know, as one does to introduce (laughs) her to FDR and Eleanor. And FDR is played by Edward Herman, known for the Gilmore Girls, the Lost Boys, and the Electric Grandmother. This is when FDR is like, I'm going to create a social welfare program. You know, I blacked out, whatever. I need your Mm -hmm. help, Annie. I need your help, Warbucks. And and this is when Annie breaks out into tomorrow. The showstopper. The showstopper. Everyone joins in. What are your thoughts on the song? Is this one of your favorite numbers? I mean, it's the hardest. That's the audition song. That's the hardest song to belt. It's so kitschy and I never took it seriously. And then... Like during the pandemic, people were singing it and it brought a whole yes. new like meaning to it. And I'm like, oh my God, like, this is actually really poetic. And I never once stopped to think about it that way. I don't know that I really loved this song as a kid. Yeah, I, I think I just kind of, it's really earwormy. Yeah, my siblings hated it because I just, <laughs> you know, just all day, all night. I love you tomorrow. I love you. I love you tomorrow. I mean, right. As a kid, you're like, yeah, it's always a day away. Big deal. (laughs) Why is that a song? And as a grown up, you're like, oh, tomorrow. We always get, it's always, it's hope. It's not when you're a kid. No. (laughs) Enough already, Anne. We're trying to watch Three's Company. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So. This is when Rooster and Lily visit Miss Hannigan and they come up with the master plan to pose as Annie's parents. And then they could split the reward money. And Miss Hannigan had the other half of the locket and reveals like, oh yeah, Annie's parents died in a fire. Why didn't they tell Annie? 
it's so it goes from dark to darker. Chris, aren't they just going to like kill her? Isn't that kind of the implication? Yeah, they just want the check. Like he's he's in a murderous rage. The stakes are high for young st- Manny. She's not guaranteed any tomorrows at this point. She is not. Her tomorrows are <laughs> limited. This is when we get Easy Street. Great number. Amazing. Yeah. It's so good. The orphans overhear the master plan and they're like, we got to save Annie. You know, they escape from the orphanage. They are headed to Warbucks house to, to go and tell them everything that's going on. Rooster and Lily come in and they interview with Grace as Annie's parents. They present the other half of the locket. Oh, irrefutable evidence. Right. They present her birth certificate and they pretend to not know about the reward. What? Uh They're just simple people looking for their daughter. We never knew where to find her until now, even though we dropped her off with the half of the locket. (laughs) With this at the same (laughs) orphanage, she still is at 10 years later, but okay. Yeah, that's a really big plot hole. This is something that we really, really ought to think about. They didn't know where to find her. She like legit has not gone anywhere in 10 years. No. Huh. They're exactly where you left her, but all right. (laughs) Unlike Anne sitting outside (laughs) while her dad went inside. Yes. Anne left. Annie did not. Anne took action into her own hands. Anne was like, you want me to go with you? Yeah. Okay. Sounds better than this. I think I'm going to like it there. I think I'm going to like it here. So Annie meets, you know, her parents and um, it's awkward. And she's like, okay, I... I guess I got to go pack. Something doesn't feel right, but. Right. And Warbucks solemnly writes them that check. Mm. They take her. And that's the end of the movie. (laughs) (laughs) Poor Annie. Oh my God. Her life is shit. Seriously. (laughs) She's going to need some serious therapy. So they escape with Annie in the car. Miss Hannigan gets in. And this is when Annie's friends arrive at the mansion and they told them the truth. They weren't her parents. They were bad people. She's going to be dangling over the Hudson before you know it. Leaping lizards. (laughs) Okay. So at one point, Warbucks and Punjab are in an autocopter. Mm -hmm. Punjab somehow spots the criminals with his eagle eyes (gasps) because how? Okay. Yep. And he unwinds his turban and he saves the day. Oh my God. Yes. She escapes and she grabbed the check. She tore up the check and Rooster is in a blind rage and he's going to kill her first. He's going to tear her limb from limb. You tore up my check. I'm tearing you apart, girl. It's over for you. And Miss Hannigan can't stop him. She's trying to, but she can't. They do the whole thing with the bridge. It's all really dark. Like the stakes were high enough. She's worth two murderous, greedy grownups. She doesn't need to be dangled off a bridge, but no. And yet here we are. Punjab rescues her, you know, the turban and the cloth. And and he says to her, I think he's dangling there, grabbing her. And he says, Buddha says a child without courage is like a night without stars. (laughs) Like what? Buddhism is not relevant here. This is all so weird. What is happening? It's like, Let's just grab from any sort of like (laughs) ethnic sounding anything and just put it in this character and then make him magical as well. And then he laughs. Every trope. There's nothing funny about this right now. (laughs) 
It's super weird. And so anyway, so weird. Annie's reunited with Warbucks and Grace, hugs all around. Rooster and Lily are arrested and, and Annie's officially adopted. And then this is when we get the together at last number mm-hmm. between Classic. Warbucks and Annie. And they dance through the giant party and um, Warbucks kisses Grace. It's a very sound of music, this part. With Maria and the big party and the the kids doing the entertainment. Everyone coming together. They're finally coming together and, you know, yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. We see Miss Hannigan ride in on an elephant. I guess she's reformed. (laughs) I don't remember. I hope she's seeking help for her alcoholism. Like She should not be on that elephant. No, she shouldn't be. And the orphans are all there and they're all dressed in pretty dresses, but like. They're going back. Yeah. What's life like back at the orphanage? So Roosevelt and Eleanor, they're in attendance. Are we to believe that the social welfare program is now going and Miss Hannigan is reformed and now their lives are going to be a lot better in that? Like, is that what we're supposed to believe? I think so. But really imagine how that would really pan out. Like the one far-fetched dream of being adopted by a billionaire. Well, that already happened. So (laughs) you're right. Like what are the chances for the rest of us, Annie? (laughs) Right. This is when Warbucks gives her the new locket Mm. and she hugs him and says, I love you, daddy. Daddy Warbucks. And that's a cool callback to like, we love you, Miss Hannigan, because they used to have to say that to her. Good point. I didn't even catch Mm -hmm. that. You're absolutely right. So the film was nominated for two Academy Awards, Best Art Direction, Set Direction, and Original Song Score and Adaptation. And interestingly, Martin Sharnan, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. This is the man who like conceived, directed, and wrote the lyrics to all the Broadway songs. Mm-hmm. He did not like how the movie turned out. Mm. He thought Albert Finney's Warbucks was just an Englishman who screamed. Mm. He thought Miss Hannigan was a man crazy drunk, which mm. she is. Mm-hmm. And he also thought that Annie had been too cuted up. Well, that's kind of to my earlier point. That's uh-huh. really interesting. So you and and Martin Sharnan are in agreement here. Yeah, I think it was really interesting that the point before the movie was not that Annie was cute. Right. Now I think Aileen Quinn's adorable. I didn't see any difference at that age. I thought Aileen Quinn was also not cute. So like to me, (laughs) I didn't agree with him at the time, but I agree (laughs) with him now. She's actually really precious. No, right. But I didn't think so at the time. She's so well, adorable. she had a really bad hair too. Those I think that was it. I couldn't get over the hair. And um I'm still mad about it. It's been 40 years. <laughs> <laughs> so of course, there were a bunch of remakes. There was a made-for-TV movie in 99. There was the 2014 film that Jamie Foxx and Annie Live in 2021 in December. Did you watch it? I didn't see that one. I don't have anyone that will watch these things with me. And this is like, you have to have your hierarchy of like the things you watch on your own, you know, and this just didn't like make the cut. So Eileen Quinn, she was actually under contract as Annie until she was like 16 or 17. Wow. Yeah. Weird. And so by that point, she was like, I don't know that I really want to be an actor anymore. Like sort of like this has been part of my life for so long. I'm ready to do something else. And um, she decided she wanted to go to school. What was she doing up until age 16 as Annie? The merchandising uh-huh. and the licensing. Appearances and things. Yeah. Right. Okay. Was like 
bananas. It was like bat shit crazy. It was everywhere. Yeah. They had like Annie everything. Yeah. I think she was just like the face of that Annie brand for all sure. that time. It was weird. And so she began teaching in 2008 at Monmouth University in West Long Branch, New Jersey. Mm-hmm. Well, and any final thoughts on Annie? Um, well, I was just thinking how I feel like the new Annie is Matilda. I don't know if you're familiar with that musical, but yes, so many parallels to the story because there's like the Mrs. Hannigan character. Yes. And it has to do with like Miss Honey and being an orphan and like, but also like the super spunky, tough little girl who cuteness is not her main thing. Right. And the like amazing kid company numbers that are the star of the show. Um, so I was thinking about that a little bit and I know I'm not the first person, again, not a theater scholar and historian. I'm not the first person I am sure to make that comparison, but I didn't make that connection. You're absolutely right. I wouldn't have even thought of it. You're dead well, it's on. Just ref- it's refreshing because the Disney movie musical with the real like Disney babe princesses started. That whole thing started when I was in high school. And I was like firmly into my love of musical theater and obsessed even as a teenager with like those protagonists and beauty was a huge part of it. Oh yeah. Not the character like Belle, like the beauty of each of these animated characters. I love that that is not a factor in these musicals and that it gives a different kind of character for kids to project themselves into that's so much more age appropriate and not about winning a prince. You know, I mean, you could argue like, you know, in a sense, she sort of did win a prince just in the sense of like, he was this like fabulously wealthy person and she got a family, but it's not this, like, it's not about beauty and romance. I just feel like it swung so far back that way with a lot of like the musicals that of the past, like 20, 30 years. So it's nice to see with Matilda. It is nice to see. And I suspect with Annie, yeah, it's pretty sweet. She gets to live in, you know, this really great house with a tennis court and a pool and and all the things. But for Annie, it really was just about family and belonging. Like all she ever wanted were her parents and they were humble people. Yeah. I really loved it. And I know you guys listening, so many of you loved it too. I really do encourage you to go back and give it a rewatch. So from Annie to Anne. I want to shine the spotlight on you and your dynamic career, which has involved everything from performing and speaking to writing and creating a beautiful platform for others to share stories. So you now help others through positive psychology coaching, but I would like to start at the beginning. I know that you have a degree in theater. Was Annie your first call to perform? What, what made you decide you wanted to pursue theater? Yeah, Annie, for sure. And um, my older siblings did some theater. They were more, um, did more dance, ballet. Okay. And I really didn't get the opportunity until high school, but I spent all of my free time learning the scores from musicals and listening to my parents' records on their hi-fi and just by ear and by looking at the liner notes, learning different roles. And I ended up getting to play a lot of those roles. 
What did you star in in high school? I have to know. Okay, so Bye Bye Birdie. Oh my God. Okay, which part did you have? Kim McAfee. So many, I mean, Eliza Doolittle, I got to play that role like 35 times in college summer theater. I got to play Louisa from the Fantastics in the same manner at UW Summer Theater. The summer I met my husband, I got to play Huddle and Fiddler on the Roof. And I knew all these roles because I had sung them ad nauseum. And that could not have hurt me, like, you know, when it came time to like getting the roles. And I just love it when something so organic, you know, spending your time just for the love of something, doing it over and over again. And then it like became this self-fulfilling prophecy in so many ways. Coming the lead in high school was like, I don't think I'd ever dreamed past that. That was Broadway to me. And then also at the UW, like my family was incredibly supportive. And then I did a few like regional kind of shows. And then I met my husband and life just kind of moved on, but I'm trying to get back there now. I've been back in voice lessons and trying to even just do community theater, but then like the pandemic hit. Oh yeah. It's been really challenging. Yeah. But I would really like to get back on stage with others that like I have done a woman, one woman show. I have I tried stand up a few times. Like I could, I have a voice teacher. I can sing in a recital. It's not the same as being in, in an ensemble with others and hearing those voices is so powerful. And I really am so determined and driven to do that. So at some point I think I will get back to it. My first love. That's fantastic. So when did you then start writing? Boy, I was really lucky because both my high school And even as a theater major in college, I had some really excellent writing teachers where I learned like how to organize sentences, paragraphs, and papers. And I always brought writing to whatever I was doing, but it wasn't until I had kids, my husband was traveling all the time. Um, And in 2008, I started a blog because I had been sending emails. I had been turning like the stress of my life in my days into just humorous, like kind of rants and sending them to friends. And then I started a blog called Anne's Rants. Called Anne's Rants. And I had thought at the time that I was really done with the whole performer side of me because I had been out of it for like 10 years. And I thought I had frankly matured past that. Okay. (laughs) And when I started blogging, it was like immediately I got reconnected to an audience. And I immediately became super ambitious about writing. It also was a feeling of self-efficacy as I'm trying to like figure out my identity as a new mom. Oh, absolutely. And that's how I came to know you. Yeah. Yeah. We met at like blogging conferences. And so, so all of these things combined is how I found my way back on stage with the storytelling project. Listen to your mother. Oh, listen to your mother. I mean, it's just so incredible. So Kate, of course, season one co-host, folks listening, no Kate. I actually encourage her to audition for Listen to Your Mother. And she was in it and she was amazing. Amazing. Her piece, The Kid Factor, I will link to the YouTube video in the show notes so you guys can check it out. It's just such an incredible space that you've created for women to share their stories. And this, these are women of all different backgrounds. Mm-hmm. And men too. Sharing really, really intimate, personal stories. I mean, what an incredible gift. What inspired you to create Listen to Your Mother? And how did you actually 
figure out, like, I want to take this to the stage. What was that process? Um, Well, it was being a a blog, her, one of these blog conferences where they had something called a community keynote where people would just read blog posts. They were, it was competitive and, you know, so it was really good writing and really moving true stories. Yes. And I'm watching it and I'm like, completely riveted. And, and first of all, also the way I wrote, because I was an actor is I always loved the idea of reading my writing out loud, sort of okay. like David Sedaris style. Yeah, yeah. So I think I was already feeling the itch to perform, but then um, I also already had a master's in social work by this time. And I was so moved by how powerful the bearing witness was and giving voice in that room. Yes. And then the theater major part of me was like, this is like zero production costs. This would be so easy. So it didn't all come together in that moment, but very soon afterward, I literally had the idea in like February of 2008, I just picked up the phone and started calling theaters. Like, I want to do this. Would you ever, and the Barrymore theater, which is a huge venue, usually a music venue, but they also really like community type things. Okay. They were like, sure. Cause on Sunday afternoon, they're not doing anything. It's like February. I'm like, Oh, mother's day. Oh, like I want my community to get to feel in real life what is happening in the blogosphere, as we used to call it. Right. All these creative people supporting each other through parenting and then all sorts of things, life. Right. And it was so powerful. There was so much peer support happening and through the hardships and trials, tribulations, humor, all of it. And I'm like, Mother's Day deserves so much more than just brunch. I want to make this a community event. And so it happened within like seven weeks. I had a show. Oh my God. That's incredible. And then because I was blogging, I had the whole thing videoed and I put it on Vimeo and then immediately blogging friends of mine were like, I want to do this. So then it was like figuring out how to help other people do the show. And Deb Rogers, who was known as Deb rocks at the time, was kind of doing this at the time. She was working with a few bloggers who were kind of taking their things to the next level. And she loved the project. She's like, I can help you do this. I can help you find sponsors. And then it was just took off like lightning. I mean, just that's a terrible metaphor, but you know what I'm saying? That's incredible. And in 2015 came the book, Listen to Your Mother. Yeah. What she said then, what we're saying now. And that's a collection of personal stories celebrating motherhood. Yep. From the shows, all of them from the shows that have been edited into book version. Yeah. And today, a decade later, Listen to Your Mother continues on stages all across the country. It's nationwide. You're at, you said, 60 cities to date. Yeah. So not, yeah, to date. So it's not like, you know, there might only be like five or 10 shows this year in different places, but I'm sure we're even over 60. I stopped counting. That's how many cities the show has been in. What a blessing to anyone who wants to share their story, a blessing to the audience that gets to hear these things. There's still like 2000 stories on the YouTube channel and you can search by topic, like humor, moms, dads, but then also like loss, infertility, adoption, LGBTQ, like any topic related to motherhood. Cause the whole thing is like, like single parenting, like everyone had a mother, even if you're not a parent, like everyone's deeply affected by this theme by and large, the vast majority of people who read these shows are not actors. They're people who have a story to tell, just like at the mop, people who get compelled to like get up there because they have a story to tell or they're trying to work something out through a story. And so, yeah, the audience experience is as important as what happens on the stage because people start realizing, oh, maybe I have a story to tell too. Yes, exactly that. So there's something really for everyone. Everyone can connect to it. That's so Yep, beautiful. everyone. 
Now you mentioned you have a master's in social work mm-hmm. and you launched Listen Life Coaching. Yeah. Can you tell the audience a little bit about what life coaching is, who it's for, and more specifically, what you offer as a positive psychology coach? Sure. So life coaching is helping people get unstuck or move toward their goals. So it's not therapy. Um, It's not like working out trauma or like delving into your past. Depends on what people want in terms of what I offer. Uh Some people, um, the positive psychology piece is I got certified in positive psychology, which is evidence-based neuroscience. Like if I was going to come into the coaching field, I wanted something specific to offer. Right. And it's really about how to improve your well-being and lift your mood. And there's evidence-based research and replicated tools for doing that. Okay. But also that lens can be used no matter what you're working on. So if it's like a career change or you're just trying to figure out what's next for you, they're tools to help you get unstuck and help guide people through any sort of transition. I offer one-on-one coaching via Zoom. And if people are interested, if they feel like they're in a bit of a stuck place, if they feel like they need help getting a project going, if they feel like they just need to, they want tools to lift their mood a little bit, they can go to, yes, it's huge. I have things for that. So you can go to listenlifecoaching.com. You can sign up for a free 30 minute consultation. You can see all my rates and packages, like everything's right there, you know, and you can sign up. I offer a five minute mood lift, which is a free guided meditation. And then also a weekly newsletter, which is, it's always just five minutes to lift your mood. So it could be a guided meditation. It could just be something short that I've written with tips and tricks. I'll tell you when I decided to take a step back from writing about my kids, I floundered and like I floundered I want to say maybe about two years Mm -hmm. and I'm in my mid forties. What do I want this half of my life to look like? I was just so lost. Yeah. That's actually how this podcast came to be, but I'll tell you, it was like two years of uncertainty. And I feel like if I had had someone that I could go to and speak really honestly about how I was feeling, you know, cause you, you try to talk this stuff out with your partner and, and your friends and everyone's on their own journey. Everyone's on their own path and they could suggest things to you. Or, you know, if you're my husband, you're trying to solve it. And I needed to come to the space and make these decisions on my own, but I really needed help doing it. I needed someone to help me with the negative self-talk. I needed someone to be on my team who was a professional who could really see the dynamics at play that were really holding me back because I don't even know that I could identify them. And until you can identify them, how do you move forward? You just feel so stuck. I'm just nodding and nodding and nodding. I know, like I I see you and I, I can tell that you're receiving this from a place of real knowledge because I think it's a really, really common human experience but I think we don't talk about it because we're supposed to at this age, let's be honest in our minds, at least we're supposed to have it figured out, but I could have used you to help me through that process. I feel like I could have saved myself so much time and I feel like I could have saved myself so much 
energy, just to have a more focused approach. It gives you new information too. So everybody who I work with takes a VIA strengths assessment that stands for values in action. And it's a free 15 minute tool that everyone can take via character.org. It was developed by the same man, Martin Seligman, who helped develop the DSM as the diagnostician's manual that like anybody who has any sort of mental illness, they get a diagnosis from this big thick book. Well, he had a pivotal shift about 20 years ago. I am not going to focus on dysfunction and what's not working in people's lives anymore. I'm going to, I'm going to work on what is working. So what is function really? And he and his colleagues came up with this assessment. Everyone has these 24 strengths and it's, you know, scientifically sound. You're not supposed to be able to game it. And it ranks these 24 strengths that we all have in order of your signature strengths to your lesser strengths. And it's very illuminating and it helps you see where you find flow, flow meaning where you are at ease, deeply involved in satisfying work. And these signature strengths are the how for lifting your mood. And when you say, for instance, like you needed to stop the negative self-talk, like Mm -hmm. a lot of us know we need to do that, but we don't know how. How? And for me, the how is self-compassion. Well, again, that's great, but how do you deliver self-compassion, right? So this is what we get into and we get granular and it's different. There's tools that I offer that are similar for some people, but the approach does vary from individual to individual. But sometimes it really is some new information that we need as to where we are now. And most of my clients are women in this very similar stage that you're describing. Mm -hmm. Me too, which is how I ended up getting this coaching certification is like seeing, you know, I have a senior right now who's about to graduate. I have a freshman, you know, we're going to have an empty nest before you know it. I am only now beginning to understand how that's going to hit me emotionally. Yep. And I was just like, I don't want to also be adrift in terms of my identity and self-efficacy when I'm already going to be struggling emotionally. Like I want to figure this out now. Yes. And you know, that's so interesting that you say that because I too have a freshman son and my son graduated in 2020. And, you know, you were saying a lot of your clientele are women of our age and our generation asking these big questions. But I wanted to ask you, is this something that young people could really benefit from too? Because like, I'm not just talking about my son. Of course, I have a son who's, who's in college, but when you're a young person, you're just, it feels like it's all so big. Where do I go? What are my strengths? Making these decisions feel so permanent and they're scary. Is this something that can help young people too? Absolutely. Yes. And um, there is a, a version of the via strength assessment that's specific for kids. And I've had my kids do it. It was super helpful for my son when he was writing his college essays. I couldn't get him to do this assessment. I'm telling you. And then we finally are sitting down. He's got to write these essays. And of course, right away, it's like, describe yourself in three words. And he's like, I have no idea. And I said, I'm not going to say this again, I promise. But if you go and take this assessment, not only will you have three words, but they'll be accurate. They'll be descriptive and they'll be engaging and they'll give you something to say. And you'll better know yourself. And that's exactly what happened. And one of his top signature strengths was humility. So I was able to say to him, this is why you've been procrastinating and not wanting to do this because you don't like to talk about yourself. It's very validating to see these values in action. 
in terms of the positive psychology side of things, very helpful for parenting. You've probably heard buzzwords like growth mindset and it helps you identify what works for you and why and do more of it. And the brain science shows that the more hopeful action you take, and it doesn't mean you have to feel happy or hopeful, but the more positive action that you take within your strengths, continuing to work with what's working, it actually makes it easier for more positivity. It's a positive chain reaction in your brain. So I'll just say one more like fact type thing and why I'm so completely absorbed in positive psychology and it works for me personally. So I'm drawn to it is that humans have a tendency to think that it's the the state of our lives that is causing our happiness or misery, our marriages, our jobs, the pandemic, which obviously is a real stressor. Sure. Grief and loss, obviously that stuff all affects us. But in reality, we have a mood baseline that we come back to. So half of that roughly is inherited. Thank you, mom and dad or not, and grandma and grandpa. (laughs) But we can fully impact the other like 40%. And these numbers are not like firm, but there's a huge piece of our well-being that we can positively impact and there's ways of doing it. And that has changed my life. And I love helping others with this. Oh, and that is so inspiring because I love that you're coming to this from a place of function and it's function that is inherent in you. Once you can identify these strengths Yes. and then how do you use them for your benefit? Maybe it doesn't have to feel so hard. It doesn't. Maybe we're going the path we're going because we were told by our parents that that's what we were good at, or that's the lie that we've told ourselves. And maybe taking an assessment like this can really surprise us. I had my own little epiphany, old big epiphany when I took the VS strengths the first time, which is that humor and creativity were like more toward the middle or lower on my profile, which I would have thought would be like the top, right? And it was so validating because the top strengths were like kindness, perspective, social intelligence, love, honesty, like the things that like so clearly are me being me and the people who love me most, that's the and they know. Uh huh. The creative expression stuff, that is so much more tied to my goals and outward validation. And is actually often a place of not that great of well-being for me. Like if, mm. if I'm in the role and I'm mm. on stage, yes, I love it. Mm. Back when I was submitting my writing, when that was going well, great. When it wasn't, it was not good for me. And it's because I was having to pull really hard on those strengths. It's not a place of ease. And that was so interesting to me. It's like, yes, yes I have talent there, but it's not ease. It's and not what's ease, ease is all of that is forward most when I'm coaching. And then the more I do it, the more it lifts my mood. Right. There's real momentum there. Yes. And then it will balance me out and enable me to do more of the creative stuff because this, these core competencies, these strengths that make me, me, like they say of the, the top signature strengths, if somebody took them away from you, could you even be you? It's like, no, no. So when I'm when those are really in play, then it allows more spaciousness for some of the things that are harder for me, that are tougher. And it's just lifted my mood and engaged my curiosity. I'm just like reading voraciously. I'm very committed to staying a beginner at this. I'm no kind of expert. I've just learned tools that I can share with others. And to continue learning is um, the best thing that you can do for one of the best things you can do for your mental health over the 
the long haul. Oh, absolutely. And to feel like you really have someone in your corner with your best interests at heart. Yes. And just keep you going because it mostly comes from you. It's coaching is really cool process because unlike therapy, where it's very much like the expert and the client with coaching, I'm really asking people a ton of questions and mirroring back what I see and what they say. And so many of the discoveries come from within. And so it leaves you feeling really empowered. You get going on whatever project or tools that you need and you kind of take off. And then I'm here to check in with and kind of keep you going, but the momentum is really coming from you. Oh, and it sounds incredible. And I have a lightning round that I ask all of my season three guests. This is okay. So this is just a rapid fire. Okay. Okay. Oh God. This makes me nervous, but I'm ready. Yeah. Okay. Pearl jam or Nirvana? Nirvana. Best fast food fries. Wendy's with the, um, the chocolate shake thing. Oh, that's good. Dipping it in. Yeah. Yeah. You know who also said Wendy's this season? Who? David Vienna. Interesting. Yes, yes, yes. (laughs) Favorite 90s fragrance? Um, White musk from the body shop. Oh, God, I love the body (laughs) shop. You're welcome. You're welcome. You're welcome, listeners. I know you're nodding. Standing O for that. Yes. Okay. (laughs) Did you ever own a bucket hat? No, that was too blossom to me. That was not like a cute, that's just, nope. That was a nope for me. Okay. Brandon or Dylan? Dylan. Oh, for sure. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Like the danger in it. Yeah. I'm here for it. Okay. What was your first car? Oh, I never had a car until I met my boyfriend who became my husband. So his white Mazda. And then I guess we bought a black Jetta. I never had like a, my own high school car. You never had like a piece of shit high school car. No, I did have to um, drive my parents West Belia, which is like a VW camper around town, which was totally oh, mortifying. Not a cool. That bus. is super badass, And <laughs> It was <Yes>. horrible. <laughs> and the brakes were kind of soft. I still have nightmares about like having to put my whole body weight on this brake. Oh God, that sounds terrifying. It was, it oh, was no. like, it was like a shoebox. It was like, it was terrible. <laughs> yeah. Were you a latchkey kid? Yes, you were. Okay. So this is kind of related to that. What was your after-school snack of choice? Chef Boyardee ravioli, um, Captain Crunch at my friend Megan's house because we didn't have sugar cereals. The Stouffer French bread pizzas. Yes. These are all comfort classics. I I appreciate it. Yes. Okay. (laughs) Film that traumatized you most as a kid. Exorcist. Exorcist. Yeah. Super scary. Watched it too young. I was like nine, I think eight or nine. Okay. First concert. Well, the nylons, which were these like cheesy doo-wop group, but like, I'm going to say sting dream of the blue turtles. I always want to say Island of the blue turtles because that was a novel at that (laughs) a kid novel. (laughs) But anyway, sting, I'm going to say sting for real, but really it was the nylons, which was this horrible doo-wop situation. Sting. That that's a very cool answer. Oh my God. And he got nominated for a Grammy, like and got word of it in the middle of the concert. (gasps) And I was just like, Oh my God. Like, and I'm here to witness it. Yes. Yes. History was made. Last question, which is selfishly for me. What is your favorite Elton John song? Oh, Well, this is a super teen answer, which is Daniel. It's not probably my favorite. It's beautiful and so sad. It's so beautiful. 
but um, I made it all about me. So this is hilarious because we were talking about Annie, the musical. I mean, I am so unbelievably egocentric. It's <laughs> unbelievable. My older brother's name is Dan and he moved to Israel when I was, I was probably like 15, 16. So right okay. in there. And I, we had, we hated each other when we were kids, but then we became like besties in high school. Aww. He moved away and I would listen to Daniel and cry. Cause you can see Daniel waving goodbye and the taillights on the plane. <gasps> I made it all about me. So Annie and Ann yes. and Daniel and Dan. Oh, Dan. And if that's not oh. perfect bookends for your show, like oh I couldn't, couldn't do it better for you. I'm sorry. Sheer poetry. And thank you. <laughs> I love every single one of those answers. That was fantastic. What's your favorite Elton John song? Oh my gosh. So I am like a ginormous. Okay. He is, he is my everything. And, um, I, I have so many of course, but I think border song might be my favorite, which I don't think it was ever a single. I'm not trying to be like all deep cut about it, but (laughs) got a beautiful message of coming together. And I just, I love him. I love him so much. So good. So good. Lori, this is great. And thank you so much. It's just been such a pleasure for all of you listeners. Check out Anne and all that she offers at listenlifecoaching.com. I'll link to Anne and all of her, I'll I'll link to her website, all of her social media. So you can check her out online and get to know and love her and just be moved and inspired by all that she offers. And I want to thank you so much for joining me on the pod. It was just such a joy to revisit Annie with you. And <laughs> it was so fun and hilarious. Seriously, <laughs> I, I think about the characters in Annie and I'm like, they could have used some positive psychology. I mean, those orphans. <laughs> well, tomorrow, tomorrow is like the most positive psychology song ever. It's all about just keeping going and stepping into hopeful action every day. I'm so glad that you had me. Thank you. And I've been enjoying listening to other Gen Xers. I think it's great what you're doing. Thank you so much, Anne. And thank you all for joining us. If you're loving the pod, I invite you to rate and subscribe so you never miss an episode. We also have a Patreon, patreon.com forward slash the Untitled Gen X podcast. We hope you keep in touch, beautiful people. Bye. Bye.